Again, to everyone and to those of you that are live streaming with us right now, uh, this would be a good time for you to look inside of the bulletin. You can grab out, grab uh, and get out of the bulletin, the sermon handout. As you can see, uh, we're not going to have an MPG on the back of this because we were needing a little bit extra space for the notes and the scriptures that we're going to be using today as we look at this final building block in the series that we're looking at. Uh, this is not the last sermon. It's the next to last sermon in this series that we're calling The Building Blocks. Building Blocks, as you know, are the early curriculum that you get as a little kiddo in learning your ABCs, your 1, 2, 3s, the colors. And you also learn that the blocks are something, these building blocks are something that you actually can build on. And again, this is where we learned the, the, the early information that has helped us to be con, uh, continuing learners all of our life. And it's not just uh, the academic part of life, but it's, it's our faith life as well that actually has some building blocks to it. And the text that we've been using as our theme text, our central text in the study, is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I'm going to read it again for us this morning. This writer, this anonymous writer, says, So let us stop going over the basic teachings about Christ again and again. Let us go on instead and become mature in our understanding. Surely we don't need to start again with the fundamental importance of repenting from evil deeds and placing our faith in God. You don't need further instructions about baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And so... God willing, and God does will this, we will move forward. We will move on to further understanding. And what that writer is trying to say is that there are building blocks to the faith, but these building blocks form the structure. They form the foundation for what you become later on as you mature and become more Christ-like. And in this text, there are six that he gives us. The first one is repentance. Repentance is basically getting your life on track, and repentance is important in staying on track. Repenting is about reorienting. It's about changing your mind. It's about changing direction in life, and it's one of the foundational building blocks of your faith. Secondly, faith. Faith is growing increasingly comfortable with increasingly trusting God day by day, regardless of the circumstance. Regardless of the situation, faith is learning how to trust God, to rely on God's presence, to rely on God's Word and His promises. Number three is baptism. Baptism is about starting your life over again. Renewal as a human being begins with a rebirth. That is baptism. And then we talked about laying on hands. Laying on hands is one of the ways that we connect God with the most important things in life. Blessing our children, praying for people that are ill or need healing, or they need uh, God's power to come into their life to bring that healing. The resurrection we talked about back at the beginning of this series when we began it on Easter. Resurrection is about a life that goes on forever because death is gone. Life goes on because death is gone. We're going to talk about judgment today. And then next week, we're going to focus on how all of these building blocks actually do, actually do form the foundation in which we mature and move on and move forward in our faith as disciples of Jesus. Now, if you have gone with me to Israel, there's a lot of things that you get to see when you go to Israel. 
And on this last trip, if you went with Ellen and me while we were in Jerusalem, you'll remember that one afternoon we visited the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Jerusalem. Now, it is, it's, a, it's a phenomenal museum in terms of the way that it's put together, the structure, these kinds of things, but it's not a typical museum. As you can tell by the title, it is, it is not a typical museum because it is an archive of what is worst about human beings. It's an archive, it's a record of what is worst about human beings. It's, it's what humans can do to one another at our worst. And one of the things that strikes you as you go through this museum is not just the depth of evil, but it's the vastness of it. And something that happened, you know, 60, somewhat uh, more than that, 80 years ago, is something that still strikes uh, the, the heart of anyone who goes and, and visits that museum. The, just the, the sheer vastness and depth of the evil that a human being is capable of. Well, it's not just the things that have happened in the past. It's things that are happening today. Uh, two weeks ago, we, had, we read in the paper about 53 schoolgirls who were killed in Kabul, Afghanistan, when three bombs went off near their school. 53 little girls. We read in the paper this last week and have been hearing on the news about all of the people that are being killed on you know, Israel right now as Hamas and Palestinian Authority, you know, go to blows with the Israelis and all of the stuff that's happening in that nation. And when you kind of step back and you just look at history and you look at the newspapers and you look at, at, at the television news every night, you look at things like this, you look at history like this, and you ask the big question, what in the world is going on? What in the world is going on? Now that is a question that you ask at sea level. At sea level, right on the ground, it's a little hard to understand what's going on. And when we do look at it, it looks like history has a lot of suffering. It has a ton of suffering and not a whole lot of meaning. But for followers of Jesus, we believe that history has a goal. We believe that history is going someplace. We believe in a different reality. And what I'd like to do kind of at the beginning of this sermon on judgment is to kind of give you a very simple depiction of the biblical view of history. It'll be up here on a screen. And the way that I want you to look at this, think, think of it this way, that history is the scene of the unfolding of the good will of God. That history, as we live it, it is the scene of the unfolding of the goodwill of God. Now moving from left to right, that first box, creation and fall. Christians believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And then when God created everything, everything was good. We use that word tov. You know, it's, a, it's an exact representation of what it was he had in his mind when he created it by saying a word. And then, that's the first two chapters, and then it's in that third chapter that sin is introduced into the world through the disobedience of the first humans, and the world becomes a fallen place, and a cursed place, and a corrupted place. Death has entered into the world. And it's the nature of sin. Sin is, is like air pollution. It touches everything, and everything it touches is corrupted. And that is the trajectory of the world, the presence of sin, the struggle for faith, and the specter of death. 
But as history moves on from there, we come to square two. And one of the things that we know about God, that we believe to be true about God, at the core of our understanding of the nature and the character of God, is that He is love. That He loves what He has created. He loves the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. He sends His Son, who dies and pays the ultimate sacrifice, the price, for us to be able not just to be forgiven, not for us just to find heaven, but for us to be completely changed, to be different kinds of human beings. He resurrects from the grave. He defeats death. And it's now about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is being inaugurated. But then we drop down to that little circle that says life after death. Even though the world continues to move forward, and even though the cross of Jesus and the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus has taken place, people in this world, because of sin and because of the presence of death as this intruder, as this alien and God's good, God's good creation, even though that continues, people are still dying. And, and what happens is they go to, this, they, they go to life after death. And the, the righteous go to paradise the unrighteous go to a place of torment. And that is how history continues, with death being a, a reality that we deal with in the fallen world. The righteous go to a good place called paradise. The unrighteous go to a place of torment, which leads us to square three. The Bible also teaches that not only did Jesus come one time, the first time, in order to save, but that Jesus will come again one day, known as the second coming. And not only will there be the second coming of Jesus, but there will be a judgment between the righteous and the unrighteous. And the righteous will receive their resurrection bodies, and the righteous will enter into that last square, which is life after life after death, which is another way of saying eternal life, life with a resurrected body. It's God and man together forever and ever. Now, we could spend a lot more time talking about the ramifications, implications, and the details of this. But what I want to give you this morning is just a very simple and very quick summary of what the Bible teaches about history. And it's in that middle square, that middle word in square three, that in the eyes of most people in the Western world, the most offensive all Christian beliefs about God and the future is found, and that is that word judgment. Judgment. A judgment is a reality, and it is something that the Bible talks about a lot, especially in the New Testament. And what I would like to do is give you three biblical realities that are tied together to help us get our mind again around this concept of judgment in the future. And the first reality is this, that God is a God of both love and judgment. That God is a God of both love and judgment. You'll remember in Acts chapter 17, Paul is Mars Hill there in Athens, and he's preaching to a lot of people that uh, are very, very smart. And, and he talks to them about the gospel and about Christ and about judgment and the resurrection. And he says, In the past, beginning with verse 30, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, to not move away from God, but to change their direction and to move in direction of God. For he has set a day when he will, what? Judge the world with, what? Justice by the man he has appointed. 
He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so when Paul is talking about all of the great things that God is doing in the world through Christ Jesus, one of the things that he mentions is that God will judge with justice. So he's not just a judge, but he is also love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God because God, say it with me, is love. Let's say those last three words together. God is love. Go eight verses later in 1 John chapter 4. And we read, and so we know and rely on the love of God has for us. Say it with me. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, we see the New Testament writers, and the Old Testament for that matter, talking about judgment and love. And the problem, the tension that exists, is in reconciling a God of love with a God of judgment in two different ways or in two different areas. The first tension is this. How can a God of love condemn people? That's a good question. But I would offer this. That every one of us, not just the people that are inside this room, but everybody in this community, in fact, everybody in the world, wants justice. That even the most liberally minded thinker, the most liberal minded thinker in the world, wants there to be in the cosmos justice. No one wants to live in a universe where all wrongs and all crimes and all wickedness and all hurts and all disappointments are not somehow put to right. That we want justice. I would also offer that love does not exclude wrath. In fact, the opposite of love is, 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 not, is not hate, but indifference. And so the psalmist in the Old Testament, we'll talk about God as, as, as a God who is a righteous judge. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays His wrath every day. But by the same token, He is also described as a God of love. Romans chapter 5, not only is He a, a God of love, but a God who acts and interacts with us in love. But God demonstrates, verse 8 of Romans 5, His own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still unreconciled to God, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? So when we think about God as love and God as judge, there's a way to think about judgment that combines the two, and it's this. God's judgment is His hard stop of all the bad stuff. There is justice in the cosmos. We don't always understand it. We don't always see it. But when God acts as judge, it is putting a hard stop to all the bad stuff. In fact, I love this quote from Becky Pippert in her book, uh, Hope Has Its Reasons. She writes, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insights of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God is a God of love and a God of judgment. But the second tension is this. Doesn't a judgmental God create exclusion and abuses 
and violence in his followers. I actually think that it's the other way around for disciples of Jesus. I actually think that it is the other way around for people dedicated to live their life with a faith that is defined as trusting God's Word to happen. If I don't truly believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord and that in justice He will judge the world and one day all wrongs will be put to right, then I will be tempted to pick up the sword of revenge against fellow human beings. Now, as a church, we have, as the body of Christ, representing the Christ who said, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you, we have to ask ourselves a very serious question when it comes to judgment. Do we believe that God Himself will put all things right at the end of time, therefore freeing us up to be people that love people the way that Jesus loved us? Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, that this Polish philosopher by the name of Czesław Mislos, I don't know if I said that right or not, but we've never met him, but he saw this particular philosopher wrote what he saw in both Nazism and communism. And what he saw was that the rejection of God was what led to the brutality of the Second World War and the Cold War. We, as the body of Christ, are called to love and to represent Christ in that love and to leave vengeance to Yahweh. And so Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might on the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This, Paul writes, includes you. Because you believed our testimony to you. One day, God's judgment will be the hard stop to all the bad stuff. God is both a God of love and a God of judgment. Next two points. Uh, I want to begin, uh, I want to set the next two points up. There is a, a quote from C.S. Lewis in, actually it's in two books, The Problem of Pain and The Great Divorce. The one I'm about to give you is from The Great Divorce. And what Lewis writes is, there are only two kinds of people in the end, two kinds of people, those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desire joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find the one that knocks, it is opened. 
So the second point, I would say, is this. That those who reject Christ get what they want. Eternity without Christ. All humans are accountable for their own lives. We, we believe that, that free will is a big deal. We believe that when it comes to love, in the hierarchy of values, and in the hierarchy of, of, of needs, that there is something about a reciprocated love that is so much greater to receive than a coerced love. And so God, in the way that He has fashioned human beings, is not going to, to, to violate, He is not going to transgress across our ability to make decisions because of being accountable for our own lives. And so it boils down to what you make of Jesus and His claims. Those who reject Christ get what they want at judgment. Eternity without Christ. Paul writes, Romans chapter 2, is because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. There's a flip side to that coin, though. That those who follow Christ get what they want. Those that accept Christ, those that believe the gospel of Christ, get what they want, and that is eternity with Christ. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul says, you know, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. But to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with Him. Then in that passage that, uh, that Mark read, I want to read the last two verses again. I mean, we know John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then it continues, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so I'm here to tell you, church, that we believe that history is going someplace. We don't believe that history is just a lot of suffering with no meaning. We believe that, that history is on a trajectory. We believe that history is the scene of the unfolding good will of God. We see that history is going somewhere. That the beginning of history is a garden where man and God are together and it's bliss and it's perfect and it's wonderful and there's no death. There's not a whiff of anything remotely evil. But then the world changed. And in that history that unfolds, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that God is working and moving and working and moving creation and creatures to what we found in Genesis 1 and 2, that is God and man back together again. And the starting point is Jesus on the cross. Behold the Messiah nailed to the cross. The very one, the powerful humiliated, the very one that the religious dismissed. 
the very one who welcomed children and put his hands on them and brought them into his lap and blessed them, the very one who showed compassion to prostitutes and the broken, the very one who dined with tax collectors and patriots, the very one who called the weary and the heavy laden to come to him because it was in him that they would find rest for their souls. He is the one who loved even unto death as he forgave the very ones killing him. He is the one who was despised and mocked and beaten and killed, and yet no grave could hold down his body or his beauty. Behold, Jesus of Nazareth is risen from the grave, and we believe that history is going somewhere. We believe that there is a climax in history in which all the ugliness of this life, the wars, the contempts, the disdains, the violences, and the oppressions are all, every one of them, all of them, will be undone. And we believe, friends, that there will be a triumph of truth, a triumph of beauty, and of justice, and love, which no ear has yet heard and no eye has seen. Judgment is coming. And it will be a hard stop to all the bad stuff. And in all of the gaps and in all of the empty places, it's God's love and His beauty that gets poured down. Amen. Let's stand and sing.